and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, now that he's had a taste of double masters, he's eager to try out a triple masters. It's Matt Morgan. So Joey, this past weekend, I discovered that smiles is officially the longest word in the English language, but that's only because the first and last letters are literally a mile apart. <gasps> oh, Matt, my, my English major heart right now. You're speaking right to it. I love that. Oh, <laughs> really well, I'm, like I'm glad my, my English teacher mom would be very proud of me. So I'm glad you two are on the same page. <laughs> page? <laughs> You, I, okay, I, I, so I missed last episode, but now that I'm back, I'm feeling right back at home. Like you're, you're making me feel right back where I, where I ought to be with all of the dad jokes. This, this is wonderful. What a warm welcome back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you could book it right back into the podcast and uh, hit your stride. So let's, let's keep going. Oh no, you are, this is a masterclass. I love it right now, the dad jokes, but as the show goes on, it will slowly begin to torment me once again. Anyway, up next, his background has partner with Friends Forever, it's Dana Roach. Uh, just remember, Joey, you should always respect people wearing glasses. They paid good money to see you. <laughs> Okay, I really like that one. That, um, that was a that was a Mer that was a Merrill Age joke, Joey, because it's uh, her vision's twenty twenty. Mm. <laughs> and Dana, I can't help note but notice that you also wear glasses. So um, you're saying you you, you got to be really nice to you. You should have seen that one coming. Yes. Anyway, this is the EDH Retcast. Oh, thank you for the warmest of welcomes back, you guys. <laughs> oh, man. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, in addition to tormenting us with dad jokes, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, can you tell us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? We're going to talk about cards that look like they're supposed to be doing one thing, but actually slot in to other decks and other strategies a little bit better than what they might be doing on their face. Yeah, this is a, a, a show that we're calling imposter cards. These cards might look like they serve one function, but instead of putting them into deck X, they might actually be a little bit better suited to deck Y. And so it'll be fun to look at these cards and see what imposters quote unquote lurk amongst the uh, the cards that go into the 99 and give them a, a bit of a critical eye and see where we might find uh, might find better homes for them it should be a whole bunch of fun real quick before we get into our main topic let's thank chase aka manicures for assisting us with the post-production of the show thank you so much chase and of course we want to thank our sponsors for the show as well the idiot Recast is sponsored by card kingdom and a tcg player they are the equivalent of double masters and everyone else is basically fallen empires remastered just go to EDH Rec and pick the card in question and select a vendor link down below. Doing that supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether you want to see all the episodes a day early, we have a special tier for that. Maybe you want to submit challenge stats for us. We also have a special tier for that as well. There's all that and more over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. And as always, we are doing that very special weekly shout out. So this week, Christian Ladoris, I absolutely adore us, your devotion to us <laughs> and uh, appreciate the support that you give us each and every week. That's... <laughs> Matt, um, you're wonderful. I, I love you, dude. Thank you so much. Christian. Do you also adore us? <laughs> Thank you, Christian, for the support. And, uh, 
<laughs> I, lo- I love that you will find any way to absolutely just find find the it's you make I, me happy i'm glad to be back as all i, I will enough. force wordplay into any situation <laughs> i can don't you worry I love it. Okay, fellas, let's get into our main topic. We are talking about imposter cards, cards that look like they're good in one strategy, but maybe they aren't actually as good in that strategy as they would be in a different deck. And let's actually start off with a card that sort of inspired the name for this episode, and that's the card Imposter Mech. This is a really interesting vehicle card that actually clones one of your opponent's creatures. Imposter Mech, two mana, three, one, and it actually enters the battlefield as a copy of a creature and opponent controls, except it is still a vehicle and it has the crew three ability. And this is a card that shows up in a whole bunch of decks. There's a lot of vehicle commanders that are currently playing it, like Kotori and Shorakai. But I thought this might be a fun card to talk about in the context of an imposter card, because in my opinion, this should not just be relegated to just vehicle decks, you know? Yeah, I mean, the effect on there at that casting cost is really, really efficient in a whole lot of decks besides just the vehicle decks. Yeah, clone clone effects usually are gonna come in that four mana plus range. So being able to sneak one down pretty early and get whatever kind of utility card you're needing, there's a lot of upside to that. So yeah, it, you don't wanna run this in specifically vehicles decks because if you're playing a lot of creatures, the crew cost is gonna be irrelevant, but being able to copy some massive attack trigger, that's always gonna be welcome in pretty much whatever deck you can think of. Yeah, this feels to me like it would be really fun in, say, the new commander, John Arenicus, which gives creatures to your opponents and goads them. And then you could have Imposter Mech come down and copy the creatures that you gave them. And I just love the ability for this to actually steal effects from your enemies, including those that maybe you've given them. This feels actually to me kind of almost like a control card because you can copy someone's commander with this, but it turns into an artifact that isn't a creature. So it doesn't die to like a board wipe or anything like that. So this actually feels like it might be even better in a control strategy than just in a vehicle strategy because you can permanently copy someone else's commander and it will be very difficult for them to ever remove it with combat or board wipes or anything of the sort. Or maybe if you're playing an artifact deck, this could also be a really fun thing to repeatedly recur from the graveyard over and over again to get opponents enter the battlefield effects this just feels like a a card that has a lot more applications but it's currently only been relegated to vehicle decks and i think that that is something that ought to change so another good example of this that isn't so fortunately named because it doesn't have imposter right there uh telling you what it is 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 burgeoning um a, a one mana enchantment that whenever one of your opponents plays a land you can play a land and it looks like a landfall card and it's in fact most common in landfall decks um, and it definitely makes sense there, especially in a deck like Tatiova, where every time you play a land, you draw a card. There's a lot of added synergy there. It's in a lot of Windgrace decks. It's in a lot of Omnath decks, just generally a lot of landfall decks. Um, but to be honest, as someone who's played a landfall deck and has played an Enchantress deck, the card is way better, I think, in an Enchantress deck than it actually is in a landfall deck. Mm. For one, landfall decks tend to empty their hand of lands fairly quickly. And they have a lot of redundant effects that do that, um, oftentimes right there on the commander in the case of someone like Mina and Den. Whereas Enchantress decks tend to not have a bunch of redundant ways to do that. So for one, you're not ever worried about having the having more land plays than you actually have lands. Secondly, Enchantress decks and wheel decks to a degree where it's very good as well, mm. draw a ton of cards. They just almost will always have the ability to play those extra lands on other players' turns in a way that maybe you don't see so much in a landfall deck where additionally it's really useful to do that on your turn sometimes. (laughs) So 
as good as as burgeoning is an exploration to a degree as well in those landfall decks. In a lot of ways, I think those are better cards in Enchantress decks than they actually are in landfall decks. Yeah, if if you're playing any type of deck that can reliably keep its hand very, very full, sometimes being restricted by one land a turn is actually a pretty big restriction. And so being able to kind of get around that, Mm -hmm. that's going to help just power your engine forward so much quicker that yes, landfall decks, sure, they can take advantage of it, but landfall decks can take advantage of pretty much whatever they want to take advantage of. So (laughs) expanding your horizons with burgeoning makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm absolutely here for it. Like if you're playing Sithis Harvest Sand, for example, that deck draws a ludicrous number of cards and it wants low drop enchantments. So Dana, I'm totally on board with that. Burgeoning does feel like it would have a better application in a Sithis deck than just in a landfall deck. I mean, again, it's probably fine in a landfall. Yes. But a, a landfall deck does care more about the act of actually playing a land, having extra land plays as opposed to uh, land triggers that you would get from a burgeoning because a landfall deck might also contain cards like crucible of worlds that allow you to get the cards out of the graveyard and that can matter if you're repeatedly triggering like an evolving wilds over and over again for example like the extra land plays can certainly be relevant there but when it comes to a card like burgeoning i totally agree with you here and i really like that you pointed out wheels as well like any deck that plays regularly a lot of cards like windfall is often refilling its hand then, well, not only are you refilling your own hand, you're giving other people more lands to play too, but you're going to play more lands than they are. I mean, they'll have more lands in hand, but you'll get to play all of yours because you've constantly refilled everything. So I totally agree that Burgeoning seems like one of those cards that it says lands on it, so it looks good for lands, but it might actually have even better applications elsewhere. So if you're trying to figure out where should I put my Burgeoning, maybe the Enchantress deck is actually the better place for it than your Landfall deck. Well, another card that I think has better homes and where it's typically getting played is going to be Stormtide Leviathan. So Stormtide Leviathan is a massive card, and I love this card. It is 8 mana for an 8-8, which right away signed me up. But <laughs> Stormtide Leviathan also says it has Island Walk, and then all lands are islands in addition to their other types. But the big point that people seem to forget about is creatures without flying or Island Walk can't attack. And so you see it's a big Kraken, it's a big Leviathan, big sea monster, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but it's going to slide into some of those big sea monster type of decks. But not every sea creature has Island Walk. If you look at the typical cards that are being played alongside of it, there's a lot of Leviathans and Octopuses and everything else that you can find under the sea. But not a lot of them actually have Island Walk themselves, which is why if you can actually play around that last ability... Stormtide Leviathan has homes in so many other better decks. Like if you have a flying tribal deck, this makes sure that you're the only deck that can attack. Or one of my favorite tribes, you can play Merfolk, then yeah, you can slide in. You're the only one that's going to be attacking because your entire team has Island Walk. Or you're going to give your entire team Island Walk with one of your 17 lords that you're probably playing in the deck. (laughs) So it's just a fantastic card when you think about it as not playing it in the typical sea monsters type of deck. That's so true. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Merfolk do tend to have a lot more island walk than any of the sea creatures often do. So, yeah, wow. And and certainly flying is a great place to put it too. It's weird. Like you see Stormtide Leviathan and you think sea creatures. This is one of the most famous sea creatures, I think, because it locks down the board and it looks like, I mean, it itself is certainly going to be unblockable and that's really good. But when I look at the other sea creatures like Slinvoda or Lorthos or Scourge of the Fleets or even Holebreaker Horror, none of those have island walks. So if you're playing a big sea creature deck, like an Eryxmethes deck or something like that. 
Well, now your whole team can't attack. So yeah, I think you're totally right that if you're playing a flying tribal deck, a whole bunch of stuff in the air, or those merfolk, most, those merfolk are going to have a much better chance of actually getting through the restriction on the Stormtide than the sea creature stuff, which is a shame because this is a really classic sea creature. But I, I, I think you're right. I don't think it goes in sea creatures decks nearly as well. Yeah, you guys mentioned flying tribal. Um, I, I have a Talrin Sky Summoner deck that isn't necessarily flying tribal. It just makes a bunch of flyers primarily. <laughs> and so, yeah, Stormtime Leviathan turns off Talrand, who I was never going to attack with in the first place. <laughs> but every other creature of mine can attack without caring, and it shuts off attack or swinging my direction. So, yeah, that's there, that the perfect situation for that card is oftentimes not necessarily the sea creature deck for sure. Mm-hmm. I'll move now to another funky example here that a lot of our listeners have actually told us about as well, and that's the card Satoru Umazawa. So this is a relatively new ninja from Neon Dynasty, uh, three mana, two, four. It has a ninjutsu. Uh, sorry, it itself does not have a ninjutsu effect. It gives all of the creatures in your hand a ninjutsu cost of four. And whenever you activate a ninjutsu ability, you look at the top three cards of your library and you put one of them into your hand and the rest onto the bottom of your library in any order. But the ability only happens once each turn. And when you look at this card's page, when looking at it not as a commander, but as a card in the 99, it definitely shows up in certain ninja decks for sure. But this might not actually be the best card for ninjas, like Yuriko the Tiger's Shadow. Like, if you really want the first triggered ability for a ninja deck, that could be a good source of card advantage, and I definitely like that application too. But Satoru Umazawa itself doesn't have ninjutsu, and the cost that it gives to all of the creatures in your hand tends to be a lot more expensive than other ninjas already have. So it turns out that ninja decks don't always run Satoru Umazawa in the 99 because he seems better at the head of his own deck. He is a ninja, but he's also kind of an imposter there because he doesn't seem to assist the ninjas quite as much as most of the other ninjas that we already have will assist each other instead. I mean, this is one of those cards where I have literally seen a person with a new ninja deck playing the deck and play the card and at some point over the course of the game go, this card actually isn't very good in this deck. Oh, wow. Like, I've, I've actually seen the people that come to that conclusion in the middle of playing it before. So this is a, this is a perfect example of that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's often funny how sometimes you can, you can reach too much of a good thing in certain tribal decks. Yeah. And this is totally, yeah, like there's just so much room there. Well, I should say there's only so much room for ninjas and ninjutsu and all those types of effects that mm. you actually find a better home for some of these cards outside of the tribe that they were made for, kind of like with Stormtide Leviathan. Isn't isn't that the funniest thing about Commander, Matt, is that like wh when I see I'm trying to decide between cards and it's sometimes if I'm like seeking out advice from other folks or if I post uh, things online, I'm just like, hmm, I'm trying to decide which of these to run. Pretty often, I feel like the feedback you get is like, oh, they're both so good. You should, you should try to play both. And it's just like, but I can't play both because I, I can only play 100 cards, though. I can't like I want to play 150 cards, believe me, but I can't <laughs> play all of the things. I have to make some tough choices. And so sometimes cards like these emerge from those processes. But it is so funny that, yeah, you're totally right. There's only so much. Much room. Another good example of one of these cards, I think, is, is the land nesting grounds. Um, it's a land that taps for a colorless mana, but it also has a one mana activated ability where you can tap it to move a counter from target permanent you control onto another target permanent, and that's as a sorcery only. Um, that primarily is showing up in decks that care about keyword counters, where it's perfectly fine. You can move one from one permanent to another, and there's a lot of creative things you can do with that. Um, but there's other places where I, I would, again, argue it probably is better 
um, serve than it is in those kind of decks. Um, Satsuki, the Saga Commander, for example, can use it to take lore counters off of a Saga oh. and put them onto some other permanent that doesn't care about them, basically let you letting you repeat steps on those Sagas. <laughs> for one single mana, that's really, really useful on a lot of different Sagas. Uh, another place I think it really shines, and this is based on personal experiences, in Planeswalker decks. One of the strongest things you can do in a Planeswalker deck is be able to hit the ultimate on a Planeswalker when people don't think you're going to be able to do that. Oh. And having this sit there that everyone's forgot you have a nesting ground sitting there and being able to move a loyalty counter from a Planeswalker that you weren't too concerned about it, it, it hitting its ult onto one who was who everyone thought they had a turn or two to deal with it is incredibly powerful. <laughs> I think that card really shines in that kind of deck and doesn't see nearly enough play there. Well, and, and the big thing the big thing to remember with this too is it's move a counter from target yeah. permanent. So it's it's like you said, it's not just plus one plus one counters, it's loyalty counters, it's hexproof counters. Like with all the different counters that we got from Coria and all the sets ever since then, there's so many nifty plays you can do with nesting grounds. And I think a lot of people just kind of forget about it, even though it's in almost 11,000 decks. And I wouldn't run it for this use, but but technically you're moving a counter from a permanent you control to another target permanent. It doesn't have to be one you control. So if you're playing this for other reasons and someone happens to put minus one counters on your stuff, you can move them off your stuff onto someone else's stuff. That's not a reason you should include it in a deck, but like if you're already running it, don't forget that you can do that. You can move counters onto things you don't control as long as they originate on something you do control. That's so amazing. Dana, you are blowing my mind with this one. The loyalty counters, the lore counters, moving stuff that like, oh man, this is, this is a very, I, I feel like this is one of those cards that I've never given the time of day. And I need to start, I need to look again at this nesting groundings card because there's a lot of very secret applications that are, are totally accessible here. And I didn't even think about this in Planeswalkers, but yeah, that is sneaky like I'm, I'm afraid of this card a little bit now, especially if you're playing like what's that new Lazelle card mm -hmm. uh, that if you would put a counter onto something instead, it adds an additional like you can yes. actually mess with those. So this can right. be yeah. increased even more or pure and toothy might be another one as well. Like mm -hmm. when you put a counter somewhere, you put an additional counter on that so you can move extra counters around. This is a land that can give you extra of those counters. Oh, dude, you are blowing my mind with nesting grounds. Yeah, yeah, great card. And, and I, again, like I said, I'm not going to start putting it in my decks that don't have a purpose, just on the off <laughs> chance I can use it. But but in the decks that can use it, there's a lot of added uses for it as well. Love that. That is so good. Matt, do you have a pick to add to the roster of imposters? The, the roster of imposters? I like the wordplay you did there. Quite quite well played. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I, I wouldn't even say that was profane, but it was well played. But the card that I want to talk about <laughs> is Profane Tutor, which is a, one of those uh, no casting costs, but it has suspend, so you can pay one on a block to suspend two. So you put it in exile, and then you cast a couple turns later, and then it's just a demonic tutor from there. You get to search your library for a card, put that card into your hand, and then shuffle. So it gets played on a lot of like Prosper decks and a bunch of cards that are a bunch of decks, I should say, that are exiling cards and then playing them from exile. And that just doesn't really work with suspend cards because there's no way to play them. You have to suspend them and then they go back in exile. So yeah, Prosper decks, maybe not really the place, but somewhere that you would want to maybe give another look at Profane Tutor at is going to be decks that have a lot of Cascade in them. Mm. Uh, Yidris Maelstrom Wielder, for example, that, that cascades a lot. Or anything with black, really, that has any sort of Cascade mechanic. That's where this card is really going to shine because you get your, your regular effect and then you get to cheat this into play and cast a free tutor, which, I mean, free tutors are kind of hard to top. 
they're already one of the more powerful types of spells. And so being able to get in this or get these out for zero mana, it's just something very, very powerful. Yeah, you're right. That is such a risky thing to do with any of those like Prosper. Because if this card gets exiled with Prosper's own effect, like, yeah, you can play that card into your next turn, but it doesn't have a casting cost and you can't suspend it except from your hand. So if you're playing any of those exile effects, Jessica's will, if you flip the profane tutor off the top, if you flip um, it, flip it off of like a reckless impulse or any of those. Yeah, it does just kind of get trapped in exile. So it's good when cast from exile, but it's not good with the other types of draw that those decks are filled with. And I would totally prefer to play it in a cascade deck. Absolutely. Yidra seems like a really spicy place for this, actually. Uh, well, why that tutor may be profane, do you know what is quite divine? Challenge the stats. Oh, my. <laughs> so, so wait. Hey, I, I, Dana's a dual deck unto himself with angels and demons. <laughs> I, Dana, I've, I, I take one week away from the show. I come back and you're stealing my segues again? I guess. Buddy. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, let's, let's absolutely do it. Challenge the stats is one of our favorite segments here on the podcast because there's so much data on EDH rec, but we don't always agree with it. So, Dana. How about you challenge those statistics for us? What is your challenge? I am going to challenge the card Mental Discipline from way back in Urza's Erlenmeyer Flask um, set. <laughs> um, Mental Discipline is one and two blue for an enchantment, and it simply says, for one and a blue, choose and discard a card from your hand and draw a card. Uh, Mental Discipline is currently in just two of the over 1,700 Riel the Everwise decks, where it functionally becomes a two mana draw two that you can use an unlimited amount of times based on the amount of mana you have. It's not the most amazing card in the world, but in the right deck, whether it's a madness deck or or a deck like Riel where you get rewarded for discarding, that's a pretty solid piece of tech for a card that costs about 30 cents to buy and sees almost no play at all. Um, so if, if you are playing Real, if you are playing a deck that's l always looking for ways to put cards in the yard and get rewarded for it and wants to do that repeatedly, take a look at Mental Discipline. It's in just 109 decks in EDH Rec, and it should be in more, and it definitely should be in more Real decks. Dana always coming in fast with these cards I've never heard of before. Uh, a very classic return to form here, buddy, and this is a pretty spicy card, I gotta say. Yeah, I mean, particularly the fact that it's not a once-per-turn thing. It's as long as you have mana, you can pitch and draw. And I think that's that's really, really powerful in a lot of places. Alrighty. Well, I also have a blue enchantment for my challenge here. Um, and my challenge actually comes to us from one of our listeners. So Lucas Spielman contacted us via email, um, went digging deep for uh, in our Challenge to Stats archives for this one. And I really, really liked it because Lucas points out that the card Teferi's Ageless Insight, which is the four-mana legendary blue enchantment, that says if you would draw a card outside of your first draw step, uh, the regular draw for your turn, then instead you'll draw twice that many cards. Uh, he, he points out that only 22 of the 1100 Eloise decks, Nefalia Sleuth, are, are currently playing Teferi's in Ageless Insight. And um, this seems like a pretty good enchantment for a commander that makes this many clue tokens. Eloise makes clues whenever a creature you control dies. It investigates anytime a creature you control dies. And Teferi's Ageless Insight is already just a really good card to amplify your draws anyway. But in this deck, those clues, you're making so many of them. And instead of cracking them for two mana to draw one card, now you're cracking them for two mana to draw two cards. So Dana, it's pretty similar to your mental discipline here. Two mana, two cards. Mm -hmm. uh, that feels pretty darn good. And Lucas, I think this is a really good pick to amplify this commander's abilities a whole heck of a lot. 
Yeah, that's that, that one is really good too. I, I, we're, we're all looking at discarding cards and drawing cards this week, apparently. <laughs> so let's see if Matt can stay on theme. Yeah, Matt, are you drawing cards? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not drawing cards, but I am discarding them because I want to dial down on a certain mechanic, actually, but it's all about discarding stuff. So the commander that I want to talk about specifically is going to be the Faldorn Dread Wolf Herald, which is one of the new Baldur's Gate legends. It had that pre-con deck that it came with it. Um, it's gruel colors, and whenever you cast a spell from exile or a land enters the battlefield under your control from exile, you create a 2-2 green wolf creature token. Then you can pay one and tap Faldorn. Then you discard a card and you exile the top card of your library, and you can play it this turn. So a mechanic that I really, really like, especially with all the just looting effects that red has just in, like incidentally in so many decks are going to be madness cards because in a deck like Faldorn, madness means that you discard them and they go into exile and you then cast them from exile <gasps> which is the way that madness works it's very very powerful so there's a card that has madness that i think people should be playing more but also it feeds into Faldorn's ability of playing more cards from exile and that card is Stromkirk Occultist. So it is two and a red for a vampire horror creature with trample. It's a 3-2 and says whenever Stromkirk Occultist deals combat damage to a player, you exile the top card of your library. And until the end of your turn, you can play this card and you can pay it as the madness cost for one and a red. So if you're playing any of those Faithless Looting effects, you're going to be able to get this and get one of Faldorn's triggers off of this. Or you can just go to regular, you know, casting this normally, but then you still get that engine going of whenever you deal damage with this, you're also going to get another, you know, exile the top card. Those impulse draw effects, they're so fantastic. So just having a bunch of flexibility on A, how you're able to cast Stromkirk Occultist, but also... It's just playing around with a mechanic that I think a lot of people only really pay attention to when it's on Angie Falconrath. That's it. <laughs> and, but really, the, the Madness is a fantastic mechanic because you get to cast things from Exile. So if you're wanting to do that, maybe with like Leila or anything like that, there's just a lot of commanders that open up the door. So Madness in general, Stromkirk Occultist in those Faldorn Dreadwolf Herald decks slotted in. Only 15% of players are doing it so far, and I think that number should be significantly higher. And I will just add, add this, Matt, quick. That Faldorn deck, having played it just out of the box, has played better than any pre-con out of the box I have ever played. That that deck was a lot of fun to play, and it was really strong just as printed. It was very impressive. Yeah, Dana, that, that deck is absolutely juicy. I've heard so many people saying great things. And just in general, the pre-cons have gotten worlds better as, as they've gone along. Yes, absolutely, for sure. But yes, you, I've heard from so many different people that Faldorn Dreadworld Herald, out of the box, is just a blast to play. It's powerful. It's fun. There's just a lot of cool things. So yeah, I, I'm glad that people are latching onto this commander, but also there's some really cool things you can be doing with it. Matt, you are blowing my mind with the madness pick on Faldorn because it has a discard ability and, and, you can, and it also casts from exile. These are weird, tricky rules interactions that I just never would have pieced together. And I just appreciate both of you, like Dana with the nesting grounds and you with the Faldorn now. This is I'm, I, I will leave a review, a five star review on the EDH Retcast for, for, <laughs> for this because look at the juicy tips. I'm just so delighted by this. Well, like, holy crap, this is so good, dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can be clever every now and then. I, I'm not always playing the swords <laughs> of stomp and kick. I'm playing the swords of smart and wit sometimes, too. <laughs> well, hey, speaking of swords, let's get back to impo imposter cards because I want to talk about a, a creature that really shines in the proximity of swords, and that's Shimmer Dragon. Mm. 
Uh, Shimmer Dragon is a six mana creature, has flying, and as long as you control four or more artifacts, it has hexproof. And you can tap two untapped artifacts you control to draw a card. Um, Shimmer Dragon primarily shows up in treasure and clue decks or in decks with commanders like Togo that make an artifact token. And it, it's a perfectly fantastic card in those decks. The downside kind of there is you have to tap those clues and tap those treasures to draw the card off of the Shimmer Dragon, which makes them unusable until you're able to untap them. So you can't like use the treasure for mana. You can't get the sacrifice trigger, whatever. It's good there, but where in my experience Shimmer Dragon really shines is if you happen to have access to blue in your equipment deck, because there's zero downside at all to tapping your Lightning Greaves and your Sword of Fire and Ice to draw a card. The equipment that you have in play that you're going to be suiting up to a creature or already have suited up can be tapped to draw cards for just no downside at all. And you can also equip the Shimmer Dragon to swing through and hit somebody as well. <laughs> so it, it's a good card in the places where it's ran, but it's fantastic if you happen to be playing an equipment deck that has access to the color blue. So as a quick note to clarify, actually, uh, the treasures do have a tap effect. They have to tap and sacrifice. I don't think clues do. A clue token might just be two mana sacrifice, and it doesn't require the tap. So I think clues, you'd still be able to tap them for, for the Shimmer Dragon effect and then sacrifice them. But it does shut off the treasures for sure. And... Uh, Th that's sort of just a side note because really the point that I actually want to get to is that yes, Dana, you're right. Shimmer Dragon is amazing in your decks that have a lot of equipment. Um, I may or may not have been swung in by your own Shimmer Dragon that is wearing a lot of tapped artifacts that you used to, to draw a butt ton of cards and then slam in for bazillions of damage at me. It's almost like you have a lot of experience in this area. <laughs> I have personal experience with this card yes absolutely and yes joe you are correct clue tokens are the ones that can be sacrificed without being tapped it's the blood tokens that require the tap action gotcha to 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 be used so yes no, you're right in clues it's blood tokens i was i was confusing them with well and the, oh, there are so many different types of tokens like even when it comes to the tokens that make mana there were there was gold once which didn't have a tap like there are a whole bunch of right, different types of, yep. <laughs> types of these things but yeah shimmer dragon's a really clever card and you keep finding additional outlets to use it and that's um it, it doesn't bug me necessarily it just makes my life total go lower and lower if that makes sense <laughs> it does make sense yeah i keep losing games to it yeah <laughs> how about i jump in with another card here and this is actually one that i'm <laughs> it, it might have been a little bit mean of me to put it into the show notes matt buddy can we talk about monologue tax one of your favorite cards ever in don't the history don't of you magic. put that devil magic on me that is not one of my favorite cards <laughs> so, card is card is a heaping pile of wasted design space oh okay so i i will I agree it. with you I, said I, I will agree with you that i'm not in love with monologue tax i am so monologue tax for everyone out there is a three mana white enchantment whenever an opponent casts their second spell each turn you create a treasure token and for me i do wish that it made more than just that i feel like if they're continuing to if they what about their third spell or their fourth spell i'm like oh if only it made still more treasure than that it would be like pretty fun it, and and the rate on this one is definitely strange and matt you have encountered uh, some monologue tax situations where you've made zero treasures at all from this card yep. so i know why you don't like it i know why you don't like it but i would say that monologue tax is also suffering from a bit of this imposter situation because it is most frequently showing up in a lot of osgear decks for example because it came in that pre-constructed deck 
And I, it shows up in artifacty kind of stuff like that, but I just don't think that that is the correct application for this card. I have tried this one out in my Thalese Reverend Medium deck because whenever I make tokens in that deck, I will also get spirits as well. And I have had some success with it there. And so, I don't know, Matt, we can debate about the monologue tax if we want. Does this qualify as an imposter card? It, it, I think it qualifies as an imposter card because it's, it's trying to pose as a good card. I think that's, <laughs> that's where it is. Um, I, I This is probably one of my least favorite cards. It's been such a letdown every single time that I've cast it. Oh, no. It's so dependent on just, I mean, it, we'll get into a sidebar all we want, but it's so dependent on what your opponents are doing. Uh, and I have a deck that is built around what my like what my opponents are doing. And I still would never play monologue tax. It is such a little payoff for a whole card. You can say it's an imposter card. I I cannot subscribe to that. <laughs> I, I just think if you're if you're playing a deck that cares, like Jan Jansen, for example, is another deck that uh, came out and it cares a whole lot about treasures, for example. Like maybe that would be a better application. Uh, your Council of Four deck is the one that you just referred to there, where it does stuff based on what your opponents are doing out there. And that one also has an effect whenever your opponents um cast a second spell you get a knight token but the thing that makes your council of four decks so good is actually the first effect where whenever players draw additional cards you get to draw more cards too um and the knights build up but they're a lot more incidental to the strategy so i i can see how the second spell things have have not always been a reliable payoff for you and that's why you don't like the monologue tax i i get it well and i just think that the one treasure token compared to a two two that th- there's a very very big difference but Fair. neither here nor there i if you're gonna settle on on a card that you want to put in your decks i think there's one that you could settle on that that's much better and that card is settle the wreckage Um, (laughs) so this card you know when it had its heyday in standard people were using it as a board wipe because 1v1 formats you only had one person you had to worry about so people would attack and you could use that as a board wipe you know you exile all their creatures i should probably read the card shouldn't i so settle the wreckage is an instant for two and white white and it says exile all attacking creatures target player controls that player may search his or her library for that many basic land cards put those cards onto the battlefield tapped and then shuffle their library so this was great as a 1v1 card but in a multiplayer format it just doesn't really stack up there's so many other board wipes if you want to do something like this winds of abandon it's an overload path to exile which is fantastic and it gets all creatures not just the ones that are attacking you or just target player is attacking with. Mm. Very important distinction. But when it's used on your own creatures, that is a very, very important distinction to to point out. So I remember Tomer from the MTG Goldfish crew, they pointed out that, oh, you can indeed use this on your own creatures. You're attacking. Maybe you don't have very favorable blocks, so you just cast this exile all your attacking creatures and use it as a ramp spell but when you use this as a ramp spell maybe you get four lands or so but that's an that's an incredible rate four lands for four mana that's fantastic they're they're decks that would pay very much more mana to be casting that so it's just a fantastic utility card and i'm sure people still will use it but if you're using it in a control deck as a board wipe there are way better effects there's aetherize aether spouts there's actual board wipes (laughs) but you can use this as a ramp spell and that's fantastic and i I think tomer kind of made the internet blow up for a little bit with the realization that you can indeed use this on your own creatures I mean, honestly, I would just love to linger on that Winds of Abandon card because that's the one that uh, Path to Exiles one creature if you cast it just for the two mana, but you can also overload it to Path to Exile all of your opponent's creatures. And like 
that also feels like an amazing modal spell. Like, I, I don't even mean modal spell in the ways of like, oh, you can hit one creature or you can hit multiple creatures. I'm basically always going to cast that for the six mana version. And I mean, it's modal in the form of, oh, this helps me get out of a sticky situation. And I can use this when I have a lethal board state and I need to get my uh, things through without being blocked. Let me just exile all of the blockers. And yeah, that, that feels really good. Now they can't block me. They'll get a bunch of lands, but they're not going to be able to live to use them because now I'm swinging in for lethal because they got a clear board. So that's another fun one. These these are definitely very tricky spells. And so looking into their modal applications is really good advice, Matt. Well, thank you. Uh, another one of these cards that I, that I kind of like um, as a as an imposter card here is Hall of Heliath Generosity. Hmm. Um, it's a land that you can spend a, a white and colorless mana and tap it to put an enchantment card from your graveyard on top of your library. So then you can you can draw it and replay it again. Um, it primarily shows up in Enchantress decks, and it's fine there, but also Enchantress decks tend to win based on like bulk enchantments. They're putting a bunch of good auras on a single creature that's going to swing in and kill somebody, or they have a bunch of effects that kind of stack. And, and it's not that often that one single enchantment is what makes that deck work. Hmm. Um, it's very good there, but like in addition to that, those decks tend to have a bunch of ways to recur their enchantments. Where I found the card really is secretly kind of amazing is in decks that just have some good enchantments and are in white. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have a Sphinx Tribal deck that is not by any means an enchantress deck, but Rhythmic Study and Smothering Tithe and True Conviction are all game changing cards. And the opportunity to play those a second time after someone's already reused them can be backbreaking. You don't need a ton of targets. You just need to have a ton of insanely powerful targets. And a lot of decks have enough enchantments that, especially if you're in like one or two color decks, you can afford to run a utility land like that and, and not have it really hurt you, even if you only wind up using it once every four or five games to bring back something that's absolutely game-changing. I have kind of noticed this before in some of my graveyardy decks with the card Volrath's Stronghold, which can put a creature from your graveyard back on top of your library. And I it, it, like when I had like in Marin, for example, I was playing it in Marin for a while, and I just don't ever recall using that effect in my Marin deck because I already had so many other ways to reanimate stuff. But if I was playing a deck that had like some very specific creatures that always needed to come back, that feels like it would be much more... A, a much better place for it. Like it's not, it wasn't bad in Marin. I just, I literally can't recall ever actually using it there. Whereas you, Mr. Dana, you <laughs> have, have used this basically as a land that says, yeah, my true conviction is sticking around. And man, when I'm holding my enchantment rem removal in my hand and I see that true conviction, I'm like, ha, I've got it. He won't be able to kill me with that. Oh wait, what's that sitting behind the true conviction in his lands? Oh no. I'm definitely in trouble. My answer is not enough. That, that that thing is sneaky powerful, and you're you're. I I I love seeing the way that you are able to pull that off. Absolutely, it's it's like very dastardly how threatening that card is, even when there's only one enchantment. You know. Well, it, yeah, this card in Academy ruins both. They, I just think they're just fantastic cards in general because most decks are going to have at least two or three real juicy targets. So being able to recur whatever it is, you don't have to be in a dedicated artifact or enchantment deck to be able to benefit from these. If Yeah, if you have a true conviction and you want that to stick around, Hall of Heliod's Generosity is just a way to get insurance for your very, very powerful card. Uh, Academy Ruins is the same thing. Say you have a Darksteel Forge you want to keep around. People somehow find ways to get rid of it. Just 
play Academy Ruins. It's a fantastic card. The, the, a lot of utility in these cards that, yes, you don't have to play them specifically in these theme decks to get a great benefit out of them. To be honest, this will be potentially tough to convey, but I've kind of noticed this in like, even in my Wilhelm deck. So that's a zombie tribal deck, for example. And a thing that I've noticed very much is that the most threatening zombies on my board for other people appear to be the zombie lords that pump up all of my other zombies, like Death Baron and Diagraph Captain and things like that. Those tend to be the ones that my opponents are most afraid of, but they're not actually the most valuable zombies to me because I have a lot of different zombie lords in the deck. The ones that are the most valuable to me are the ones that have unique effects. Like uh, there's a Horde Scob that gives flying, for example. And that's, I think, one of the only ways ways that I can get flying for all of my zombies in that deck. That card is the standout. So when we see these cards that, like the Academy Ruins, like the Hall of Heliod's Generosity, we assume that they would be best for a deck that has a high density of those things, but I think the uniqueness is actually the thing to lean into here. And so when you have just one or two things that stand out the most to you, that's actually the thing to look for here. But usually our sites just get taken up by those the things that look scariest on board or that look the highest density. But these are cards that actually reward a uniqueness factor rather than a high density factor, which is very fascinating. And Dana, I appreciate you pointing that out, even as you use these cards to slam me in the face for 60 damage every turn. That That's the goal, is to get everyone slamming you in the face for 60 damage every turn. <laughs> there you go. Pat, we're passing the love around here. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'll move now to an imposter card pick that I've got here, and that's the card Wolverine Riders. This is actually a, like a, a big favorite of mine from the Kaldheim set. Wolverine Riders is a six mana four four elf warrior that says at the beginning of each upkeep, that's each upkeep, not just your own upkeep, each upkeep you create a one one green elf warrior creature token, and whenever another elf enters the battlefield under your control, you gain life equal to its toughness. So on its own, this is a six mana four four that is creating a 1-1 every turn and gaining you a life every single turn. And this card shows up in a whole lot of decks, but a whole lot of those decks tend to just be elf tribal decks, especially Lathral Blade of the Elves or Herald King of Skemfar or Miara decks, for example. This card tends to show up almost exclusively in elf decks, but like... Matt, you've got to vibe with me on this one, right? This is just an amazing token maker. This is Tendershoot Dryad 2.0. If you want a big army, this card's going to make it for you. I feel like this should just show up in a ton of token decks, not just in elf decks, because that's a lot of bodies. Yeah, I, I've always been kind of confused why people don't play this just in general more. <laughs> not just elf specifically, but yeah, this it's able to make so many bodies that if you just want body, like you don't play Tendershoot Dryad in a Sapperling tribal deck only. You play that in any deck that wants an army. Right. And Wolverine Riders very much does the exact same thing. Yeah, and, and especially, like, don't forget, that's also a life gain effect. So if you're playing a Selesnia deck that cares about life gain, then you will also get life gain triggers off of this. If you're playing one of those Witherbloom commanders that cares about life gain, this will be a thing that pumps up your Blossoming Bog Beast. Like, these are th this card has a lot of really fascinating applications. And it says Elf on it, but it says a lot of other things on it, too. So I really think that this card, I mean, it's seeing play in a lot of decks. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of those decks are just Elf Tribal, and it should absolutely see play outside of those two if you're going token tastic consider wolverine riders because this is a lot of value for that six mana tender shoot dryad 2.0 i would love to see wolverine riders pop up in a lot more places 
Ooh, and you know what? Actually, I'm going to shout one more out here before we go, and that's the card Trove Warden. Uh, that's a four mana, three, four Vigilance Cat Beast in white, and it has a landfall effect. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, you exile target permanent card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard. And when it dies, when Trove Warden dies, you put each permanent card that was exiled with it onto the battlefield under the controller of that card's owner. So that's a whole lot of words, but this is another card that came out around the Zendikar area, I think, in the Obun Moldaya Ancestor deck. And I think it's another one of those cards that since it says Landfall on it, a lot of folks associate it that it should go into Landfall decks, like that Obun deck, for instance. But I don't know if that's the best place for it. I actually think that the best place for it might literally be in a Cat Tribal deck, because it is itself a cat, and it can get back a whole bunch of your smaller kitties in your deck. And I especially really like it in Quintorius Field Historian, because that's a commander that cares about cards leaving your graveyard. Anytime a card leaves your graveyard, he makes a 3-2 spirit creature token for you. So that's another card that just because it says landfall on it, don't let that deceive you. This card's secretly an imposter, and it's actually probably better for the elephant than it is for the lands. So to kind of come full circle on this, I guess the question becomes, how do you figure out what cards are kind of imposter cards? Like how do you how do you go about looking at a card that maybe directs you to put it in one deck and come to the conclusion that it's gonna maybe work better somewhere else? What's what are like the red flags there? How does that pop up for you guys? What makes you see that card and, and, and decide to try it elsewhere. Well, kind of like what I hinted with my challenge of stats this week, if there's a specific keyword, remembering how the keyword works exactly, the order of things that it's happening. Like with Madness, you discard it into exile, and then if you cast it, you're casting it from exile, which is then where it plays in well with you know, the commander that we were talking about. So a lot of times people will only look at a keyword and they think, oh, it's only for that one commander that cares specifically about the keyword instead of worrying about how that mechanic works and how it functions. So remembering, and it just kind of comes with just general game knowledge, remembering how those mechanics are working and then looking at commanders that like how they work, not what they are specifically, not what the name is, but how that mechanic is functioning within the game. That's how you're going to open a lot of doors. You're going to see a lot of really cool things, a lot of cool synergies because you're looking at the how, not the what. I really love that, Matt, because because Dana, you're right. This is a thing that is difficult to discover in your own decks. It might take years until you notice, you know, wait a second, this might not be working. Or it might take, you know, only one game, like you mentioned with the Satoru Umezawa example, where there was a player who like the first time that they played the deck, they were like, wait a second. I'm not sure if this is doing what I want. So it could be immediate, but sometimes it is a little bit more difficult to find. I, I know that I've toyed with burgeoning and landfall a whole bunch, but actually playing it in a wheels deck, I I, I think I was playing I think I was playing someone else's Zyrus deck, actually, and I noticed a burgeoning in there, and I was like, this feels so much better. I'm getting constant burgeoning effects in this deck as opposed to the places I've usually played it um, in, a, in a landfall deck. So sometimes it does certainly take ages, and I, I, I can't help but wonder if this is partly related to the ways in which we notice a lot more niche commanders do uh, get printed a whole lot. Like when cards, you know, let's say Kadena, we've noticed is a very, very, very niche type of commander. Like we do tend to associate basically anything that happens with uh, a face down effect is probably going to automatically mentally will associate it with a commander like Kadena. But Matt, I, I think you're absolutely right that a much more close reading of those cards is going to uncover a lot more secrets and it will stop us from doing some of those mental shortcuts. I would say one thing for me that that kind of works is there are situations where I will have these cards in a deck and, and you, Joey, you just mentioned burgeoning. That's a perfect example of that. I had in my landfall deck and it was one of those cards that I assumed would be just backbreaking. 
and it was only okay. Mm. And there were enough times I would draw and be like, this is not helpful to me right now because I have four things out to let me play extra lands and I have <laughs> two lands in hand. I have no way to take advantage of that. And, and I remember being kind of bothered by that. I'm like, I know this is a good card. I, I wish I had a place where it would run. Oh, well, I guess I'll play another game with my Enchantress deck next. And then like over the course of that game, looking at my hand going, huh, I have six lands in my hand. Man, it would be nice to have some way to not have them in my hand. So like sometimes, it, and then it dawned on me, like sometimes you just have to be in the position where like you're looking at one card and realizing this just isn't doing what I want. And then find yourself in the position later on or like, that card would work much better here. That I think is probably ultimately the lesson that I want to take away from this episode, Dana, is that like you you could have played that game with the burgeoning in your hand there, and you could have come to the conclusion that burgeoning is a bad card, actually. But it, it wasn't the case. That's not how the game works. Cards are never like bad or good simply on their own. Nothing's ever in a vacuum. They're always through the lens of the deck that we're playing it in. We're, they're always through the context. So like a card might be not so great in one deck, but absolutely aces in another. It's not that a card itself is individually bad or good. It's all about the things that are helping support it. So that is a thing that is a takeaway for me for this episode is trying to find the right homes for those cards can reveal amazing powers that you didn't know that they necessarily had. And that is a very rewarding experience when you can't find it. But you're so right that it's very difficult to find. Yeah, I think it's just generally useful when you're playing commander to just kind of in your own head as you're playing to ask questions. Like when a card isn't quite working and you've seen it not quite work multiple times, the, the question maybe isn't, why is this card not working? It should be, why is this card not working in this deck and where would it work better? Because um, it's easy to just get discouraged, it, 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 but it's probably much more productive to just look for a better, uh, 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 the appropriate sized hole to fit that round peg. <laughs> that That's, yes, yeah, no, I'm with you. It was a funny image, but yes, no, I'm, I'm absolutely following. And Matt, I hope you're following too. I hope it, I hope I, it all. I was following. Uh, it was a little bit of a stretch, but we, we can live with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a visual of that, like that little short video of, of the woman reacting to the person putting all of the shapes in the exact same <laughs> Um, hole the square the hole. Yes. <laughs> yes. Into the square hole. There it is. There it is. Matt, I'm I'm just glad that we're back on the same page. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because literature word jokes. We're 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 all seeing things eye to eye here. <laughs> that one that that's just a different wavelength. Now we're getting into science jokes. Why don't we just wrap this up? We're we are I, I think we should. We I was trying, trying to get, I, I think like I'm getting back into the groove with stuff here and I was trying to relate to dad with the dad jokes uh, to Matt with the dad jokes but um I remembered I took a week off and and I, rem I I'm back here remembering in front of everyone that I'm bad at the dad jokes and I need to leave it to these guys to the experts. You're just you're just fine. You you try hard. <laughs> Did you just call me a try hard? I can't believe it, Matt. <laughs> I, I'm just complimenting your efforts. Let's wrap up here. <laughs> Let's wrap up here. <laughs> Listeners, we would love to hear from you about your uh, the the imposter cards that you have noticed out there in the wilds. What are cards that are in your own decks that maybe you actually discover that they might be better elsewhere? We would love to hear about your journeys with these very difficult to suss out cards. But in the meantime, let's call this episode to a close. And if our listeners want to get a hold of us, Matt, where is it that they can find you? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecast. We have guests on every single week, so make sure you tune in, because the guests are always super fun, the games are great, and it's just a solid time all around, so make sure you tune in. And Dana, how about you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast for cool, custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, Remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>